lot of scripture to cover today. I'm going to move through quickly. I'm going to cover larger portions of scripture and make some comments as we go. Generally, I like to just pick a paragraph or so and go through it verse by verse. Um, but this time, uh, the way that our text is set out before us, there's, there's kind of snapshots. And we could take each scene and really make a sermon out of it. But I think there's one overarching uh, point for, for all of them. So we're just going to put it all together, package it in, in one sermon and uh, hit each scene and then make the, the point at the end. So let me pray and we'll get into it. Lord, we love you, and it is truly a privilege, a blessing, a joy to be a part of the family of God and to be sons and daughters of the Most High God. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the price that was paid on the cross on our behalf, Lord, and so that we could be brought in. And now we are members of the church, brothers and sisters in Christ. And we gather together to sing and to celebrate the resurrection and to exalt you, Lord, and uh, it's a joy to do that. And so I ask now as we open up the word of God and we seek to hear from you that you would speak to us, Lord, clearly and that your Holy Spirit would be ministering to hearts and to minds. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, God, that your word would come alive and that we would not be the same when we leave here today. We would have been convicted, challenged, encouraged, changed more into the glorious image of your Son. And we thank you. We have this confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so I asked you to turn to chapter 12, and that is where we're going to be. But I want to drop back one chapter just to give us a little bit of context here. So if you would, turn in your Bibles back one chapter to Mark chapter 11. You'll notice in the beginning of the chapter, if you have headings in your Bible, most likely it says the triumphal entry. Uh, we, we are down to about the last week or two of Jesus' life before he was to be crucified. And so he enters into Jerusalem and he presents himself as the king, the Messiah. And he is worshipped and he is celebrated as such. And then he goes in and he cleanses the temple. We see that in verse 15. He did this in the beginning of his ministry. Now he does it in the end of his ministry. Pastor Bill dealt with this a couple weeks ago. And uh, the religious leaders did not appreciate this at all. Um, Jesus goes back. He leaves. He goes back to Bethany. And you'll remember there was the whole scene about the fig tree. He had cursed the fig tree as he was coming into town. And then they passed back by as they were going out of town and they saw the fig tree withered and the disciples were shocked by this and Jesus kind of turned it into a little bit of a lesson on faith and prayer and forgiveness and there was a little bit of a difficulty in understanding the exact connection there and Pastor Bill expounded on that a little bit and then Jesus comes back back into Jerusalem and this is um, verse 27 of chapter 11 and this is really kind of the context at this point of where we're at in chapter 12. Jesus comes back into Jerusalem, and he is approached by the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and they want to know by what authority he does these things. Who are you to do these things? Where did you get your authority from? And so Jesus poses a question to them. He turns it around and says, well, let me ask you a question. And he brings up John the Baptist, you know, and wants to know, was it of God, was it of man, and... 
they didn't want to answer either way. Either way they answered, uh, they were in a, a position where they were concerned that it would make them look bad. So they just said, well, we don't know. And he said, well, then neither am I going to tell you where I got my authority from. And he kind of left them there. And so next, as you enter into chapter 12, verse 1, that's where we're at today, Jesus is going to now give a parable. So he'll start by giving a parable, and uh, the parable is really about them, the religious leaders. We'll talk about that in a moment. But then from that point forward, it's like, okay, this is the end of his ministry. This is pretty much the end, okay? And he's rejected by the public, by the crowds, by the religious leaders, and he's about to turn his attention solely to his disciples. And we read of that, the Last Supper, so on and so forth. And they are pulling out all the stops. All the religious leaders, all the different sects, they come together to try to discredit Jesus. One by one. One group after another after another. And that's kind of what we're looking at today. We're going to look at it in an overview kind of fashion. And so, throughout Mark, Jesus has been presented to us as the Son of God. That's the predominant idea behind the Gospels. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world, okay? And so throughout Mark, we have seen that Jesus, as the Son of God, has power over sickness and disease. He has power over death. He has power over the demonic realm. Jesus has the ability to multiply bread and, and uh, the fish. And Jesus had the power to control the storm and the, the, the waves and the wind. And now we're going to see the wisdom of the Son of God put on display. He can't be stopped. And they do everything in their power to try to discredit Jesus. They, uh, we have a final showdown here today. And all the different groups come out in force. And they do everything in their power to trip him up and to discredit him. And they cannot do it. And we are confronted with the amazing wisdom of the Son of God. And so that's, that's kind of what we're looking at today. And we, we marvel at that. We, uh, we think, wow, the wisdom of our Lord, it's, it's amazing, is it not? We need that wisdom in our lives. Thank God that we have a God who is all-wise and all-knowing and cannot be stopped or discredited by the silly schemes and trickery of mere men. Though they try, and they have tried for thousands of years and failed, they can't stop Him. Can't be stopped. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So, chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. And the parable begins, A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower. And he rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. This is very uh, reminiscent of Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So let's turn there real fast. Let's just read that. Similarities are striking, and it's a beautiful little passage, so I just thought let's read it. Undoubtedly, the religious leaders would have knew exactly what Jesus was getting at. This language was very typical all throughout the Old Testament, and uh, very much so throughout the Gospels. So Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 says, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. 
He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain on it no more. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression uh, for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So the, the similarities are striking. The language is, is almost identical in some ways. And so Jesus starts out by saying uh, he has this parable and he uses the same language. And he's talking to the, the religious leaders here. And verse 2, here's the, the parable of Jesus back in Mark. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating them, saying, excuse me, so with many others, verse 6, he had one more to send. A beloved son, he sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So as Jesus starts this parable, he's talking about this beautiful vineyard that this man planted. He dug around it the, and the wine press. He built a tower. He rented it out. We see the similarities between the, the story, the parable, and Isaiah. But there is a difference here. This time, it's not that the vineyard itself was not fruitful. It was the wickedness of the servants that is being addressed. Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. God has a vineyard here, and it's a fruitful vineyard. But the vineyard's not the issue. It's you. It's the leaders. And so he begins to talk about this vineyard that had been built, and the owner had workers working the vineyard. This would represent the leaders. And when it was time for harvest, he wanted some of the fruit of his vineyard. So he sent a servant to go and collect. And what did they do? They killed the servant. He sent another. They, they would beat the servants, kill them, and then finally he said, You know what? I'll send my son. Maybe they'll respect my son and they'll hear him. But did they? No, they didn't. They killed him too. Now, what is this a picture of? This is a picture of the prophets of old. And ultimately, it was Jesus speaking prophetically of his coming death. And he's talking to the religious leaders. And he's saying, you guys are no different than your fathers. Just as God sent the prophets into Jerusalem, into Israel, and you did not hear them, but you treated them shamefully, and you beat them and ultimately killed them. So as God has sent His Son, you will do the same. You will be killed. And then Jesus quotes in verse 9. He says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? 
He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scripture, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone? This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. And so they left him and went away. So Jesus is confronting them. He's confronting the leaders. He's saying, you guys are no better than your fathers were. Uh, Stephen actually said this in Acts chapter 7. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. And so they had this reputation. And Jesus had said of, of the, the leaders of that day in Matthew, I'll just read it to you, Matthew chapter 23. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and you say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. So Jesus is not letting them escape. He's telling them, you're no different from your fathers who killed the prophets. And just as God has now sent his son, you will do the same to him. So he's calling them out on their, their hypocrisy and that they're no different. They're trying to test him. They're trying to discredit him. They're trying to challenge him. They're no different, they're no better, and Jesus calls them on it. And they know that in this parable he's talking about them, and they get outraged. And they, they want to lay hands on them, but they can't because they fear the people. And so they, they, they can't do anything to them. Alright, moving on. So now we have the next group. All right, So the chief priests, the elders, they approach Jesus, and they tried to call him out, and they couldn't do anything with him. And so... Round two. Now we've got the Pharisees and the Herodians. Look, guys, um, one thing I wanted to do, because all the different uh, groups show up in this text, so often we talk about the Pharisees, the Herodians, the scribes, the Sadducees, and I think on some level we know who these people are, right? I mean, we have some idea, but if I were to really ask you who are they, where do they come from, what makes the Pharisees different from the Sadducees, I don't know how many people could actually tell me that. And uh, it's really interesting. So today, since it all show, they all show up at once, I'm going to kind of hit that as they, they come up. Wanna, today's going to be some history. It's going to be a little technical. I hope you guys are okay with that. You okay with that? Okay, good. I like that stuff. So, All right, the Pharisees and the Herodians show up, verses 13 through 17. So 13 says, Then they, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Now this is a very unlikely duo here. Any other time you would not see these teaming up this way. So if you look at your notes here, the Pharisees, um, they were a religious party, we know that. There were about 6,000 of them. That's, that's a pretty large group, large group of guys. Now these guys started out really well. They were uh, known as the holy ones, the, the separatists. And that, we think, is kind of where the name Pharisee came from. In between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there were about 400 years, and there was a lot going on on the world stage. And Alexander the Great, he came through and he conquered most of the known world, and then he died, and four of his generals basically split up the, the conquered land amongst themselves. And so uh, there was the group known as the Seleucids, and they became a real problem for, for Israel. And they came in and they... they took over, and they enforced a lot of their, their culture on them. 
uh, particularly Greek culture, Hellenism. Okay, so they wanted to do away with the, the rituals of the Jews, the law of God, the temple rites, all of that, and impose Greek culture. And one of the leaders in particular was, was really bad. I've talked about him before, Antiochus Epiphanes, and it, he, dis, he really desecrated the temple. So there was a group of Jews that rose up, the family, the Maccabees. And uh, there was one, his nickname was the Hammer, okay, and he was kind of the leader of the group. And so they engaged in guerrilla warfare, and they ended up throwing, overthrowing uh, the powers that occupied, and they were able to um, restore temple worship, to purify, to cleanse the temple, to set things back miraculously. It's an amazing story. But as is so often the case, what do you think happened once they got back, they got into power and set everything right? In time, they compromised. It's so unfortunate how that happens. Um, people don't handle success very well so often. They, they, they thrive when it's hard and then they compromise when, when it's going good. And that was the case with, with these guys. So... Hellenism crept back in. The Greek culture was coming back into Jerusalem and the Pharisees rose up, this group of men, and said, nope, we're not going to do that. Okay, we're going we're gonna to live by the book. They were the back-to-the-scriptures men and they started out strong and they started out well, but then in time, they, they grew proud. They grew powerful. They loved their position. They loved to be seen and heard by, by men, and they became very hypocritical. And they put a burden on the people that they themselves could not bear. And instead of bringing people to God, they were pushing people away from God. And that was what Jesus had a problem with. Okay, so that's a little bit of history on the Pharisees. They interpreted the law strictly, um, and they made these things very binding on the Jews but they still had favor with the majority of the people. They were kind of the blue-collar guys. These were the Pharisees. The Herodians, this was a party of the Jews that supported the Roman-backed Herodian dynasty. We know who Herod is, right? The different Herods throughout. Uh, well, that was a political party, and they were Jewish, but they, uh, they, were, um, they loved Rome. They loved the establishment of Rome. They partnered with Rome. They enjoyed great power uh, because of Rome. And so uh, they were very much in alliance with them. And uh, they had a lot of Sadducees in their midst. And um, as you can see, there was a great contrast between them and the Pharisees. And so these two linked up. Really interesting. The fact that these two groups would conspire together to entrap Jesus reveals how seriously both groups saw him as a threat. So that's what we have. And they've come together to catch him in his words. All right, so verse 14. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and you care about no one. That's nice. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. So here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So Jesus saw right through their hypocrisy. That should be scary for, for a number of people. But I find comfort in, in the fact that God, God knows all things and, and can see right through the foolishness. 
What that does for me as a Christian, it causes me to rest. I, I, why even try to put on a show with God? Because He can see right through it. So I can just be honest with God. And that's what He likes. And so we rest in that. Uh, when we try to put on a show or tempt or test the Lord or act as though we have it all together, Jesus does not like that. He despises that hypocrisy. But if we are open and honest with the Lord, I'm struggling, Lord. I'm, I have bitterness or I have doubt. I'm struggling, Lord. I'm weak in this, I'm, you know, so on and so forth. Now the Lord can work with that. Okay, And so I, I rest in God's omniscience, the fact that He knows all things. There's nothing hidden from His sight. All things are exposed before Him. And we saw that with Jesus, but these guys were on the, the opposition of that. Now, they thought they put Jesus in an impossible situation. They thought, we've got Him now, because if He says you should pay taxes, then He's basically siding with Rome, and the people hated Rome, and they despised the taxes. But if He says you should not pay the taxes then he's an enemy of Rome. And the religious leaders could uh, pose it that way. And they, they essentially did do that with Pilate. That was how they ended up getting Pilate to let them have their way with Jesus, by kind of putting Pilate in that same situation. So just read with me here in your notes. There's a lot of good information here. Uh, it's a quote by David Guzik. So let's read that together. Since the year 6 AD, the Jews were forced to pay taxes directly into the emperor's treasury. Some Jewish patriots, like the Zealots, they refused to pay this tax because they did not want to recognize Roman rule as legitimate. Most people grudgingly paid it, but everybody hated it. It wasn't just the money, but also the principle of paying the Roman oppressor. Three taxes were imposed by the Romans on Judea. The first was the ground tax, which was 10% of all grain and 20% of all wine and fruit. The second was the income tax, which amounted to 1% of a man's income. And the third was the poll tax, paid by men aged 12 to 65 and women 14 to 65. This was one denarius a year, about a day's wage for a laborer. So they seemed to put Jesus in a trap. Guzik goes on to say, if he agreed the tax should be paid, Jesus then seemed to be to deny the sovereignty of God over Israel. If he would lose popular, he would lose popular support, excuse me. If Jesus agreed that the tax should not be paid, he would openly declare himself an enemy of Rome and be treated like a revolutionary. So they're thinking, we got him. Ha. You know, you can almost see it, uh, see their, their smug arrogance in this moment when they pose this question. So let's, let's see what he says. Verse 16. All right, he had asked for a denarius, right? I don't know what it was. Uh... Anyways, they brought it to him and he said, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, and this is classic, he says, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God's the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. That's simple enough, is it not? Have you ever thought about that? Like, what, does that what does that mean? Okay, so, all right, whose inscription is on the coin? Well, Caesar's. All right, we'll give to Caesar's what is his and give to God's what is his. I think there's a question that's inherent in the first question that Jesus gives. If you think through this. 
So Jesus is saying, all right, well, you know, you guys, you enjoy uh, some of the benefits of, of the Roman government and you use their currency and, and uh, Caesar's uh, his image is, is printed on the coin. It's stamped on there. So give Caesar's what is his. But the, the bigger question is, is whose image is stamped on you? Whose image are we created in? In God. We're created in the image of God. And Jesus says, give Caesar's what is his, but give God what is his. We give Caesar his little tax. We pay, we pay our little tax, right? But we give God our lives. We give God our lives. We owe Him everything. Everything that we are, everything that we have, it belongs to Him. So Jesus threw them all. They couldn't do anything with Him. They marveled at that. They marveled at Him. They didn't know what to say. Moving on, verse 18. The Sadducees and the resurrection. Now we're dealing with the Sadducees. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, came to him and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise... So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. This is a crazy question. I mean, people really come up with some stuff, don't they? And I mean, is this, have, have, has anything changed? I mean, the stuff that people come up with nowadays as random and off the wall as it can possibly be, and they're going to throw it at you. And that's exactly what they did here. This was a law in the, in the um, Old Covenant to, uh, so that if a guy did die, his, his family would carry on. So there was a law set in place to that end, and the Pharisees wanted to trick Jesus. And we'll talk about that. Let me just read this to you in your notes. The Sadducees were known for their denial of the things supernatural. They denied the resurrection from the dead and the existence of angels. So they don't believe in a resurrection, and that's what they're getting at here. They're trying to trip Jesus up. Unlike the Pharisees, they rejected human tradition and they scorned legalism. They accepted only the Pentateuch as authority. That's the first five books of the law, the books of Moses. They tended to be wealthy aristocratic members of the priestly tribe, and in the days of Herod, their sect controlled the temple, though they were fewer in number than the Pharisees. So that's the difference, okay? The Pharisees were fundamentalist. They believed in the entirety of the Old Testament, and they really pushed for strict adherence to, to the law. And the Pharisees were the opposite. They only believed in part of it. They kind of would pick and choose what they believed, and they didn't believe in any of the miracles. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They were quite liberal. Uh, they were very politically minded and motivated. They were political opportunists. And they uh, were the ones that were in charge of the temple and the priestly service. They were the priests. So you can see the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, very much so. And so now the Sadducees have, have come to Jesus and 
and they want to trip him up. And they're, they're trying to disprove the, the resurrection at this point. And they pose this ridiculous question about a woman that has married seven different men. Whose wife will she be uh, after the resurrection? If you say there is a resurrection, what's going to happen in this situation? Verse 24. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus just confronts them right out the front. He comes out and says, you know what, you're mistaken. Are you not mistaken because you uh, deny the power of God? Um, And really on two points he confronts them. One on marriage, their theology of marriage after the resurrection is off, and the fact that they don't believe in a resurrection at all. So he kind of confronts both of these. Um, First off, regarding marriage, this, this is where we pretty much get the understanding that we're not married in heaven. Did you know that? Um, that's, that's a hard pill for some people to swallow. Um, they, they love their spouse and they can't imagine not being married in heaven. Um, I think, never mind, I was going to make a joke, but I won't. Um, yeah, they, but the, the reality is, is that the, the bond that we will share in that place uh, will transcend the earthly union of a marriage by far. The, glor- the glorification that we experience in Christ and being united in Him and, and worshiping and living for, for Him in and, and that glorified state will be so much better than that. Um, but it is, it is hard to imagine. It's, it's, it's hard to think of. And, but from this we understand that that's the case. Jesus says there is no marriage in heaven. We're like the angels. We're not given in marriage. But then uh, and he, I notice how he says that... Um, let me just read it again. Um, sorry, it's taking me a second to find this. Okay, here we are. Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? As I said, okay, these guys kind of picked and choose what they believed in the Old Testament. Does that remind you? Of anybody, I mean, that happens a lot in the day and age that we live in, does it not? I believe this, I don't believe that. And they, they just did away with the miracles altogether, okay, picking and choosing. They don't believe in the afterlife, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in miracles. Sound like any, anybody that we know? I mean, that's very relevant. In our day and age, people are still doing that. And Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. You're ignorant of the Scriptures, and you know nothing of the power of God. That's what happens, guys, when you begin to try to take apart uh, biblical, sound biblical theology. You start removing the foundation, and it all crumbles. And you're left with, with nothing. You're left with a powerless religion. And Paul talks about that in 2 Timothy 3.5. He says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. You know, you, if you have a, a crossless Christ, you have a, bu- a bloodless uh, Christianity, you have no, um, no, you just take all this, what, what are you left with? You, you have nothing. It's a sickly, anemic kind of religiosity, and there's no place for that. And that's what the Sadducees had, and Jesus confronted them on that. 
You know, you twist the Scriptures, you're ignorant in the Scriptures, you deny the power of God, you make God little. You know, there are a lot of things in the Bible that are hard to, hard to understand. Would you agree with that? But if you can get past verse 1, and if you believe that, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, then, then why would we have a hard time believing anything else in there? Okay, you take that away, you have a small God. Okay? And uh, we don't do that. We don't pick and choose what we believe. We believe what the Bible says. You guys understand, okay? You start taking stuff out. If you say this is not true, then uh, what authority do we have over here? If we say that this is, this is, you know, this is just mythology, it's good for stories, there are good moral lessons in it, then what why in the world would I have any confidence in salvation? Right? And so we, we accept it for what it is. We believe it by faith. We don't pick and choose. And uh, that's what the, the Sadducees had done. And Jesus rebuked them for that. Now he's going to address the resurrection. Verse 26. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. And so the point Jesus is making is when, when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush and he said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where were they at that point? Hmm? They were long gone. Yeah, they weren't on the earth anymore, but God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He spoke of it as if they were still present. They were still alive. And that's the point Jesus is making. God, it's, it's in the very language of God as He spoke to Moses that He is the God. And Jesus says He's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And so he blasted them, and he said, you're greatly mistaken. You're ignorant. You, have, you know nothing of the power of God. And now moving on. Lastly, the scribes and the greatest command. Verses 28 through 34. Verse 28, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them all well, asked him, which is the first command of all? So now we're dealing with the scribes. Okay, who are the scribes? Let me just read from the notes here. The Greek word grammatus, translated scribe, means writer. The scribes were the ones who drew up legal documents. They also copied the Old Testament scriptures. They also devoted themselves to the study of the law and the determination of its applications on daily life. They also studied the scripture with respect to doctrinal and historical matters. Noted scribes had their own disciples. Many of the scribes were members of the Jewish council. Sometimes you, you hear the phrase lawyers. It's the same thing. Scribes and lawyers were used inter interchangeably. And so now this is who we're dealing with. These were the guys that copied the scriptures. And it was pretty amazing the process that they went through in doing this. These guys were were highly, highly respected men and considered a great authority on the law. And so, most likely, this is another trap. It's been trap after trap after trap. But this guy seems to be a little sincere. 
he seems to be more sincere than, than the other people. Um, read along with me here. Um, there's just a lot of facts here, so I want to read this. I don't want to try to just um, shoot from the hip on this one. The rabbis had determined that there were 613 commandments contained in the Pentateuch, one for each letter of the Ten Commandments. Of the 613 commandments, 248 were seen as affirmative and 365 as negative. Those laws were also divided into heavy and light categories, with the heavy laws being more binding than the light ones. The scribes and the rabbis, however, had been unable to agree on which ones were heavy and which ones were light. This orientation to the law led the Pharisees to think that uh, Jesus had devised his own theory. So the Pharisees asked this particular question to get Jesus to incriminate himself by revealing his unorthodox and unilateral beliefs. So this commentator believes this is absolutely a trap, and he kind of lays out why. As you consider all the laws and the categorization of the laws, and, and uh, they're, try, they're thinking that maybe Jesus has kind of created his own take on it, and so they want to put it out there and see what he says. So this scribe comes along and he, he says, uh, what, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important commandment of all? So verse 29, Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And it's really simple, guys. If you invest all your energy, all your, all your heart, all your time, all your resources into loving God, into honoring God, and then to loving others, particularly as much as we love ourselves, uh, we're going to keep the law naturally, automatically. God's law is good. And God's law is, is, uh, is a, a law of mercy and love so often. You'd be surprised as you study through the law of God, all the provisions that were made to care for the hurting and, and the lowly and the poor and uh, to see that justice was served to the oppressed. And so in order, I don't know about you guys, I complicate things. Do you complicate things? And so it's good for me to think, all right, simplify Love God with everything that I've got and love others as much as I, you know, love myself. I mean, I love myself. Don't you love yourself? From the time that we wake up, I mean, we get busy right away thinking, okay, got to get coffee, got to do this, got to do that, self-maintenance. I mean, we're, we're busy loving ourselves, taking care of ourselves. And if we spend that kind of time loving God and loving others, the law is wrapped up in that. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 22:40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All the law, all the prophets are in that, that very law, to love God. And so that's, I would encourage you guys, ever so often, just come back to that. Think about that. We just, we love God and we love others. That's what it means. We love God and we love others. And Jesus said that was the most important command. Verse 32 so the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that, he answered wisely. He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. 
That was it. No one questioned him anymore. Okay, he just did battle with everyone. The chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. One after one, I think it was five different things there from chapter 11 into 12 where Jesus just, every single one of them come at him left and right with different uh, questions and challenges and he just one by one knocks them out and they finally said, okay, we give up. We give up. No one dared question him anymore after that. That's a beautiful place to be. It's a beautiful place when you just stop trying to uh, look for a reason or to discredit or to argue and you just give up and you surrender. When you just give up and say, I believe, I believe. That's a beautiful thing. And so, um, you know what? This guy, he seemed different than the others. He seemed to be on the right track. And he said that, you know, this is more important to God than all of the burnt offerings. And we understand that. Throughout the Old Testament in particular, God talked about that. He was like, you know, you guys are, I prescribe these rituals and they're good. They serve a purpose. But if your heart is not in it, then it means nothing. So if you don't love God, if you're not sincere towards God, but you're, you're about your religion, your uh, religiosity, your churchianity, then I, I hate your offerings. I despise your, uh, your rituals and your sacrifices. They, they stink to me. They're not a pleasing aroma. That's, that's pretty serious. And so this guy is saying, you know, to love God with all your heart, with everything that you have, and to love others, that transcends, that trumps even all of the burnt offerings combined. So this guy was on track. He understood, and that's true. Whatever we do for God means nothing if we don't do it out of love and, and sincerity, and what we do for others the same, right? This guy really seemed to be on track. And Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom. And that's pretty cool because, I mean, we hear Jesus say some pretty harsh things uh, to some of the other scribes and, and, and elders, right? And so there's a blessing in this and there's a warning in this. One, when someone is, is not far from the kingdom, when they're on the right track, that's awesome. That's encouraging. I'm like, wow, God is drawing this person. They're actually opening up. They're coming around. How sweet is that? And Jesus is like, hey, you're on the right track. Good for you. Good job. Right? That's encouraging, is it not? But you know what? There's a warning there. Because being on the right track doesn't get you there. Being on the right track is not good enough. Okay? Um, the day that you stand before the Lord and you have to give an account for your sin, for your rebelliousness, uh, I was on the right track doesn't count. It doesn't get you there. You understand? You follow me? And so it's encouraging. I love to see it. I encourage people with all my might. If you're here, if you're seeking, praise God. You know, there's a place for you. I want you to hear the Word of God. I want you to hear the Gospel. But I want you to receive it. I want you to receive it because there's a difference between being near the kingdom and being in the kingdom. All right? And the difference is immense. The difference is eternal. The difference is eternal life and death. And so... It's encouraging, but it's something to be cautious about. No one dared question him. This was the end of Jesus' public ministry. This was the end. So now he's going to turn away and he's going to begin to set his focus on his disciples towards the end of his life, and then he will go on to be crucified. He will raise from the dead. He will rise again. Um, Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, began with a testing. 
Does anybody know what that was? Huh? In the wilderness. He was tested. Did he pass? Amen, he passed. And his ministry ended with a testing. Did he pass? Amen, he passed. Are we grateful that he passed the test? We are. That is it. Because you know what, guys? And here's the gospel. We couldn't pass the test. We didn't pass the test. We can never pass the test. Okay? Because we are all dead in our trespass and sin. We all know that on our very best day, we are still far below God's standard of righteousness. And we were in trouble. And we had to give an account for that on the righteous day. On the day of judgment, before the righteous judge, we have to give an account for our sin. Okay? And so the good news is, is Jesus came and He kept the law perfectly. He passed every test. He truly was the righteous Son of God. But He was the Lamb of God who died in our stead. He died in my place. He died in your place. So that if you believe on Him, you would not have to bear the wrath of God. But you would be underneath His love and underneath His mercy. Because Jesus passed the test in my stead. Amen? And so if you know that, if you believe that, if you confess Christ, agree with God that you're a sinner. Confess, I'm a sinner. I have. I admit it. And you confess Christ. I believe that He is the Son of God, that He died and He rose again from the dead. The Bible says you will be saved. And you, you turn from your sin, you turn to God, and you live for Him. You live for Him. Amen. Jesus passed the test. So that's the wisdom of the Son of God. No one could stop Him. He withstood all the tests. And uh, we, see, we see the Son of God on display from beginning to end. And that's uh, a beautiful thing. Let's close with that. Um, I'm just going to pray and we'll, we'll end the service. Father, we love You. We praise You, God. We bless Your holy name. We thank You that Jesus passed the test. And we thank You that uh, it's, it's awesome to see the wisdom of the Son of God and how nobody could withstand Him. And nobody could uh, discredit Him or overthrow Him. Truly, He is the Son of God. And we celebrate that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, dismissed. Thank you.